Welcome to Prophecy Today Radio. I'm your host, Rick DeYoung, for the radio program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I'm sitting behind the microphone that my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, sat at for more than 20 years. Many of you know that my father passed away recently. Although we are heartbroken at his homegoing, we are excited to know that he is in heaven and that he is worshiping the Savior he so faithfully served for so many years. We appreciate all of your prayers and support, and we would like you to know that we will continue the ministry that my dad began. We believe that it is important to look at current events and to examine where we are in God's prophetic timeline. In doing so, we have reached out to many great broadcast partners, and one of those is our good friend Ken Timmerman, who looks at the geopolitical situation for us around the world. Ken, where do we find you today? Uh, well, uh, Rick, I'm out in California. I uh, gave a speech to the Redland Tea Party Patriots on uh, Thursday night, and I'm uh, uh, here um, assisting them with their efforts to recall the Democrat governor, Gavin Newsom. Very interesting. We never know where we're going to find you. It may be France. It may be uh, Florida. Now California. You lead an interesting life, that is for sure. <laughs> well, I get around. Hey, Ken, getting right uh, into the news stories here, I'd like to get your final thoughts. Uh, America wrapped up their withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. I just... And obviously, there's a lot to be said about that subject, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that subject just from a, a, a overall perspective. Well, Rick, first of all, it's not over. This is far from over. The United States government left behind hundreds of Americans, not 100 or 150, as uh, Biden said, but hundreds of Americans, including hundreds who work for Voice of America, for Radio Free Europe, for Radio Free Asia. These are our broadcasters and the support staff people who work for the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development. Hundreds of these people were standing in line at the gates of the airport for three days before the last plane left, and the military wouldn't let them through the gates. The military and the State Department were not sure yet uh, who it was. So this is not over. You have a hostage situation in the making. President Biden, remember, acknowledged that uh, he ordered the military to give a list of those Americans to the Taliban. So they are now going door-to-door hunting down American citizens in Kabul, tracking them across the country. Uh, this is really, it, it is far, far from over. And the blood of all of these brave people who helped us over the past 20 years is on the hands of Joe Biden. What has that done to American credibility in that region? I think that may be the most serious blow of all. The United States is a dangerous ally. If you do business with us, if you ally with us, what we have just shown the world is that you could be in dire straits, in big trouble, in danger, because we will not come to your defense. We will leave you in the lurch, just as we left the Afghan army in July when we pulled out of Bagram Air Base without telling them ahead of time. They didn't know that we were going. They woke up in the morning, and the American airmen and special forces operators were gone, gone in the middle of the night. Uh, this is really a, a devastating blow to U.S. credibility, and for the President of the United States to get on, get on primetime television and call it an extraordinary success is just mind-boggling. Uh, you know, it's kind of like calling night, day, or green, blue, uh, a snake, uh, a 
Falcon, whatever you know, whatever you want to say, it's just a mind-boggling imposter imposture to the American people. Certainly, a situation we want to keep uh, looking at, and a very concerning situation as well. And switching gears a little bit, and we'd like to look at Afghanistan and uh, the possibility that it be- that it becomes a proxy battlefield or a bellwether, if you might say, for the future of the rivalry between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia? Well, it's true. The, uh, the Iranians and the Af- Iran and Afghanistan share a long, long border. Uh, they have had tensions in the past. Uh, you know, I've said frequently on the show with your, with your father, Rick, that uh, whereas Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims can, can kill each other in the morning, by the time lunchtime comes around, they get together to kill Americans and kill Jews. So they have their differences, is absolutely true, but they also have a great deal in common and a, a, a big, huge common interest. In this case, the Iranian regime uh, has been getting closer to the Taliban over the years. Remember, they hosted a conference uh, between the Taliban and the Afghan government just a couple of months ago to try to find a political solution. Of course, they didn't find a political solution, but yet they were there on the ground. Uh, today, the Iranian regime uh, is staging itself to benefit economically from the U.S. pullout. They're already selling gasoline and petroleum products to the new Islamic caliphate in Afghanistan. And I, I think they're also going to reopen that rat line that they have long had between Afghanistan and Mosul, which is in well, uh, eastern Iran, along the border, to allow al-Qaeda uh, operatives and financiers to go freely back and forth between Afghanistan and Iran. When they are tracked by U.S. intelligence assets, for example, in Afghanistan, they can just slip across the border into Iran, and, where they are basically off-limits to us. How can I say this? Because the U.S. Treasury, for years, has been documenting this. It's, it's, it's quite interesting to see that it's the Treasury Department documenting it because of their program to freeze the assets of terrorists and organizations that support international terrorism. So they will issue from time to time what they call a designation. And the designation will name an al-Qaeda financier, and then they will go into some detail about how they are operating in and from Iran. And I can tell you this, they have not been doing that without the blessing uh, and the active support of the Iranian regime. So I think you're going to see increased cooperation between the Iranian regime and terror groups based in Afghanistan, and I think you're going to see increased cooperation between Iran and the Taliban. Now, the Saudis, the Saudis, uh, before Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince, the Saudis had been big supporters of the Taliban. The crown prince is changing things in Saudi Arabia quite dramatically. Uh, he is changing the way that uh, government and society deals with women. He's uh, allowed women to drive, for example. He's, he's allowed women to enter the workforce in, in a, a much deeper way than previously. So I, I think the Saudi crown prince is going to be more hesitant to support the Taliban today, and you will see the Taliban government become a proxy of Iran, not of Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states. Iran is also trying to continue to increase its influence in uh, the Middle East by defying sanctions and sending oil shipments to Lebanon. What can you tell us about this? This is a uh, story that was was broadcast to the world by the leader of Hezbollah 
uh, Hassan Nasrallah in defiance of the U.S., in defiance of the international sanctions on Hezbollah, as well as Iran, he said about 10 days ago that the Iranian government, the Iranian regime, had entered into an agreement to send refined petroleum products to Lebanon, which has been really starved in recent weeks because of uh, extraordinary economic and political mismanagement. And uh, uh, I believe it's three tankers have uh, left um, Iran, headed for Lebanon. One of them is approaching the Suez Canal as we speak. The Israelis have got their eyes on it. Uh, We'll see if those tankers arrive in port in Lebanon. I suspect that they will, but we shall see. But they are bringing oil in violation of European sanctions, United Nations sanctions, and American sanctions on Hezbollah into Lebanon. And what is the U.S. government doing? Zippo. Absolutely nothing. We have abdicated responsibility. We have abdicated our role uh, in the world. This government in Washington can't even raise its voice against this type of open flouting of not just our authority, but the sanctions authority of the EU and the United Nations. The world is united in sanctioning Hezbollah, but the U.S. stays silent. Well, for my final question, Ken, I'd like to ask you, and move away from Iran, but stay in the Middle East there, and talk about the fact that there's reports coming out that Russian troops are patrolling the birthplace of the Syria uprising from 2011. So basically there's Russian troops on the ground intervening to help President Assad. What can you tell us about this? Look how the world is changing when you have weak or non-existent U.S. leadership. You know, Rick, the interview that we did for your dad's final video, which I can't wait to see finished, uh, took, we discussed this at some length, how uh, the United States was abdicating leadership around the world, what the world will look like without the United States of America as a great power. And we're seeing it play out right here in a microcosm in Syria. The U.S. has uh, pretty much withdrawn all of our troops, all of our influence. Uh, we still have, a, a, I believe, around 2,000 troops in northeastern Syria, but this is in the other end of the country, uh, in Darak, uh, close to Damascus. And you have Russians coming in this week, flying the Russian flag, tanks, armored personnel carriers, the whole nine yards, This is what happens when America abdicates its leadership role in the world. Others rush in to fill that vacuum, Rick. Uh, And Russia is now showing to the world that they have become the new ruling power of Syria. They have been the uh, power that saved the Assad regime from the uprising. And now they're showing that they are the ones who will be the kingmakers. They are the ones who will help Syria in its recovery and its uh, reconstruction. And they are the ones who will have naval bases once again uh, in the Mediterranean in Syria. So many important things taking place around the world. And, you you know, we struggle to find good information. And, Ken, we thank you so much for you coming on weekly and just updating us and keeping us um, updating on what's taking place and uh, giving us a proper perspective on it. Thank you so much. Rick, it's always, always my pleasure. God bless. That was Ken Timmerman, our geopolitical affairs expert. Stay tuned for more of Prophecy Today Radio right after this. 
just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. And we're back here on Prophecy Today with our Middle East News Update. This is the time that we reserve with our good friend Dave Dolan as we look at things that are taking place specifically in Israel and that are affecting Israel. First item or first thing we want to look at, and we spoke briefly before this, but you're talking about an attack, missile attacks coming out of Syria into Israel this morning, and that's all the alert right now in Israel. What can you tell us about that situation? Well, it was uh, it believed to be in response to an Israeli airstrike early Friday on Damascus uh, area in the Damascus area against uh, Iranian positions there that was launched from Beirut. And shortly afterwards, Rick, uh, at least one rocket was fired at central Israel. It's believed to have been a surface-to-air missile. Uh, they're called SAMs, the Russian-built, and they're pretty powerful uh, missiles. They travel quite a distance. Uh, but the IDF said that it was uh, aimed, that it was heading towards the coast at just off of Tel Aviv. So they say because it wasn't uh, projected to hit on Israeli territory itself, they didn't um, shoot it down. But other reports said they did attempt to shoot it down, and uh, the residents all the way from several communities south of Tel Aviv to all the way to Netanya, halfway up towards Haifa, people all over reported a series of explosions, and uh, some are saying there was a second grad rocket that's a different type, but that was fired in that did land in Israeli territory, uh, and the evidence of that was there was shrapnel found in several gardens, both south of Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv, and that's been on Israeli television, etc. So um, it looks like uh, a pretty major incident, and what they're saying, Rick, what the analysts are saying is that this may be part of a new Syrian policy to respond to every Israeli airstrike on Iranian positions, mostly in Syria, uh, sometimes Hezbollah, occasionally they attack Syrian positions if they're supporting those facilities, um, and that they've now decided to reply every time with rockets into Israel. So if so, that's audacious, that's stepping up the conflict considerably, and it comes after another rocket, uh, oh, a couple weeks ago now, um, exploded near the Dead Sea. That one was a, a Syrian rocket, and it was believed to have been fired from the east of Syria and came in over Jordan. That also followed an Israeli airstrike closely. So that's why the 
the feeling is that they've changed the policy now, and of course that makes it more dangerous for Israel to strike at those Iranian targets. And if any of those uh, Syrian rockets were to hit the Tel Aviv area, that would uh, provoke a major response from the IDF. So it's a serious escalation for sure. Very much so. We'll definitely keep an eye on that. Let's go from the uh, northern tip of Israel all the way to the southern tip of Israel. And you have told me that the U.S. and Israel are having joint naval exercises in the Red Sea there. What can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, several days ago they launched a joint uh, operation uh, involving two Israeli and two American ships, part of the 5th Fleet that patrols in that area. Uh, They were supported by both Israeli and American aircraft, and uh, they carried out some drills. Uh, The concern being that Iran's increasing activity in the whole region on the seas Uh, They have a spy boat that's positioned at the southern end of the Red Sea off the coast of Africa. Actually, Israel uh, bombed it, it's believed, a few months ago, but they uh, brought in a new one, Iran did, and it's there. They've been uh, expanding their undersea uh, activities, their submarine activities, and uh, the concern is that they'll try to strike the southern Israeli city of Eilat, And it's not only uh, a resort town known around the world for that, but it is also a major port. Of course, it's Israel's only port on the Red Sea, which connects to the Indian Ocean and the Pacific and et cetera. So it's a very strategic place. And a lot of uh, oil is uh, um, transited through there. So it would be a major target for Iran, an easy one to reach from the sea. And this is apparently a warning that uh, the U.S. stands behind Israel in defending itself and maybe, again, another reassurance to Israel after the Afghan pullout, which has left them, frankly, very, very nervous about uh, the possibilities of further conflict uh, as a result of that. Well, and that's a question that I have, and I'm definitely glad to hear that the U.S. is joining in those naval exercises as a show of force, but does does the average man on the street in Israel, do they feel like they can rely on America's support like they have in the past? Well, actually, Rick, there's a big debate going on right now in Israel after the government announced uh, this week that it was uh, lending, quote-unquote, the Palestinian Authority $150 million, that it was uh, increasing the number of work permits that Palestinians can hold in Israel to another 15,000, easing the border-crossing restrictions into the Gaza Strip, allowing more water and electricity to flow in there, reducing the sanctions uh, off the coast of Gaza that Israel had had been uh, following, in other words, liberalizing the uh, relationship. And that came after Benny Gantz, the defense minister, held a surprise meeting with the PA leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, early this week. That was thought to be in response to pressure from President Biden. So that's why I'm saying all this, that the U.S. is stepping up pressure on the new Israeli government, which, of course, is more open to the two-state solution. It includes, as we all know, an Arab party and the Labor Party and the Meretz Party, all far-left parties uh, in the government. The Prime Minister Bennett's an observant Jew, but 
uh, Benny Gantz isn't, and, um, uh, you know, the other Lapid, the foreign minister, uh, he spoke about this. He said, we don't want trouble with uh, the Palestinian Authority. We want to ease restrictions so that things will calm down. But it's really thought that they're trying to keep Hamas at bay because, of course, their popularity soared after the May War, the opinion polls show. Uh, but they're thinking in Israel, the critics of this, the, on the Likud side mainly, are saying this is probably the result of the squad and other left-wing socialist Democrats in Congress putting pressure on Biden to put pressure on Israel. So we're back to that, it seems, and uh, some people support that and are happy for it, but most Israelis are not, and uh, it's, again, another shift in policy with new administrations in both countries. Well, potentially taking their cue from that shift in policy, you mentioned earlier that there was demonstrations and protest at the border in Gaza, and I've also seen that in Janine, uh, the area that we might call, that we would call Judea and Samaria, there have been armed Palestinian gunmen patrolling the streets. Have you heard that? I have, and again, it's thought to be a bid by Hamas to uh, challenge the authority of the Palestinian Authority. Of course, Hamas violently kicked them out of the Gaza Strip, the PA, in 2007, and took it over. And uh, they're thought to be wanting to do the same in the uh, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, they call it, of course, um, as since Abbas canceled the elections as scheduled for last spring that they were projected to win. So they are, in other words, saying, well, if we can't win it in the ballot box, we'll use bullets. And uh, it's a very worrisome development. And part of the reason that Israel's trying to strengthen the PA at this time, apparently, and the U.S. as well, but uh, Hamas is a very popular force, and as I've said, they and the other radical Muslims have been very much emboldened by what they see as the defeat of America in Afghanistan, the collapse of the pro-American regime, and the Taliban taking over that country. Final question, Dave, and if, if we look at uh, the, the emboldening, uh, emboldening of the Palestinian um, uh, government or the Palestinian position, we look at uh, the fact that they are going to re reopen the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. How does that uh, enter, or how does that, um, how would that be viewed in this situation? Very clear. Even uh, many right, uh, left-wing Israelis uh, oppose that because it would be, in effect, redividing Jerusalem. It would be, in effect, canceling Donald Trump's recognition of all of Jerusalem as Israel's capital with the moving of the embassy there. In other words, the Palestinians would no longer be going to the U.S. embassy in Israel's capital. They would revert back to what they used to do, have their own separate consulate in East Jerusalem that they would deal with. Most of the staff would be Palestinian again, and uh, it's seen as a real step backwards. And there's a lot of calls on the Israeli government to refuse this demand coming from the United States, from the Biden administration, and not to carry it out. But we'll see what happens. Well, so many concerning developments coming out of the Middle East and out of Israel uh, specifically. We thank you so much, Dave, for keeping us informed. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. That's Dave Dolan with our Middle East News Update. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we will visit with several more broadcast partners, including Winky Madad and John Rood, our European affairs expert. 
Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, the program that looks at current events in the light of biblical prophecy. I'm your host, Rick DeYoung, and in this segment, we have our European affairs correspondent, John Rood. John, how are you? Very good. Thank you. John, let's get right into it. Uh, I noticed the EU, the, the foreign ministers, have high-level talks set with China. What is going on there, and what's on the agenda? Um, there's a a EU summit now in Slovenia, and so the all of the 27 uh, heads of state participate, and at the same time, uh, the various groupings as the foreign ministers group will meet, and uh, this is interesting in terms that now they are bringing up the situation with China, which has been quite tense, and there has been reciprocal sanctions. Uh, and it was first uh, through the United States and then came, came through the European Union as well. And so EU is working with China on various levels. They, they've identified three pillars of working with China in their relationship. Number one is partners. Number two is competitors. And number three is being systemic rivals. So you could imagine what those talks are like dealing with someone who you think is a partner, a competitor, and a rival all at the same time. China has been very, what would the word be, uh, aggressive. They've expelled the ambassador of Lithuania, 
uh, since Lithuania, who is the most vocal critic of China, has spoke about opening a Taiwanese uh, embassy in Lithuania, and because they use the terminology of Taiwanese rather than Taipei, then it goes against the one China policy. So it looks to me like the EU is kind of at a crossroads in its relationship with China. And in the past, it seems like uh, the EU has looked on, not necessarily prioritized America, but the close relationship with the, with the United States. Um, that is that going away for various reasons? And do you think the EU might start to prioritize a relationship with China over America? Uh, this, is, this is something that comes up frequently. And, uh, of course, uh, geopolitically, we have uh, quite a stage set right now. It's not only the European Union and China. We have uh, Russia involved. Uh, we have somewhat a Afga- Afghanistan, if there was a certain uh, vacuum that's been created there. So people are assuming their uh, positions. Uh, mentioning Russia, I would say, you know, they encourage the European Union to be independent of the United States, to ignore the sanctions against China, for example. But uh, Russia, you know, exposes their own interest there because a independent EU, or let's just say with a lessened uh, U.S. influence, would be weaker. Uh, then also, you know, the various uh, powers, such as China working with the European Union, uh, normally have a particular strategy. Some are very strong-armed, and then others uh, work, as we see in China, from the top down, we could say. Uh, so quite obviously, then, that leads to France and Germany, which we often refer to as the Franco-German motor of the European Union. France is the largest military power. France and Germany are the largest economic powers. Germany has their elections coming up soon. And then uh, trying to influence the European Parliament is a bit more difficult, uh, especially since because of the earlier sanctions in the springtime, China actually uh, sanctioned all of the members of the European Parliament. So uh, they blacklisted the European Parliament. And so it should be no surprise that the European uh, Parliament is not very keen on China right now, but all of these uh, larger nations as China dealing with the EU, they realize um, the frequent theme. They're never speaking in a unified voice. And uh, it always brings us back to the strong and the weak elements in today's European Union. Certainly a lot of moving parts here. Switching gears a little bit, and we, if, if we're looking at the Afghanistan pullout from the European Union perspective. There have been calls and there have been some people saying that the EU might need kind of a ready-to-go at, a, at an instant military arm. Uh, what do you know about that? Uh, this is a theme that's been going on uh, 20-some years. Um, actually, what you refer to is known as a rapid reaction force, RRF. Uh, the European Union has always vehemently denied that they're working on establishing a European Union-wide military. Uh, and so at the beginning days of this 20 years ago, I followed quite closely. And it's like, no, we're not an army. We're a rapid reaction force. 
Uh, I took out my NATO handbook and saw that just about the first thing in the handbook is that the rapid reaction force is the very first element of creating an army. So there was a pledge back just before 2000. They agreed to set up a 50 to 60,000 uh, strong force, but it never became operational again because of all the um, tensions, mismatch, and so forth, political aims. So now, with the situation, particularly in Afghanistan, being a catalyst, the EU once again is uh, making stronger, I would say, rather than just simply reviving. They're making stronger the idea to create at least a 5,000-strong rapid reaction force. So dates are already projected. This, uh, they want this designed by uh, next March. And uh, they see the situation, for example, in Afghanistan, that they were not able to protect their citizens because of the uh, accelerated pullout from the United States. Uh, they were dependent on the United States. France, Germany, and even non-EU member Britain uh, at this time because of Brexit. They wanted more time, but they did not have the capability. So this is, again, the revival of the rapid reaction force. Uh, NATO works with EU on various levels, but the EU has such a splintered version, meaning... Uh, necessitating the agreement of all 27 member states. But uh, this is their direction to act unilaterally, which is the same thing for their satellite system, which can be used for military purposes. Uh, they want to work unilaterally, but find great difficulty in agreement. Sounds like one man's rapid reaction force is another man's army. Is that correct? I would say so, yes. Last question, John. As we look at the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan, and we've seen the EU put out some statements that the uh, Taliban needs to respect human rights and different things like that, how is the EU going to interact with this new, I guess, government in, in Afghanistan? Everyone is looking for their positions, of course. Uh, as we mentioned, the European Union, China, Russia, even the United States will need some type of uh, relation in this situation. Uh, the European Union is ready to engage the Taliban government, but they're essentially uh, giving two, two guideline rules, ultimatum. They must uh, respect human rights, and they must not let Afghanistan become a base for terrorism in terms of the previous Taliban, Taliban rule. Um, there, the EU has, has a great deal of humanitarian aid, and uh, so they're actually using that and then somehow being able to, to monitor how that flows to see if the Taliban government would be keeping their word at all. The German foreign minister, uh, Heiko Maas, he's a bit more of a realist, and he's saying we're going to measure the Taliban by their actions and not by their words. So... There is some sort of joint EU presence in Kabul when uh, security conditions would uh, merit it. Uh, the EU is willing to go in, but uh, as of now, it would probably be a small uh, individual national um, military that would go for those purposes. But we see, as we just spoke earlier, 
uh, the EU intention, if it was possible for them, which would have a uh, would be to have a stronger uh, military army presence. Certainly, something we want to keep an eye on, and we thank you for doing that for us, John. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. We go from John Rood in European affairs to our good friend, Winky Madad, the former mayor of Shiloh, who keeps us informed on Israeli politics. Winky is in Israel, and the connection that we have has a little bit of interference. But I think what Winky has to share with us is so important today that I hope you'll bear with us. Winky, how are you doing today? I am fine, thank you. Uh, We're almost uh, at the Hebrew New Year. So I've been getting up early for what we call penitential prayers, uh, but I'm holding my own. That sounds great. Winky, let's get started on the news. The first item that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, that Israel says the U.S. has plans to reopen the Jerusalem consulate. Is this a bad idea, or or what's the controversy about here? Well, um, if I could appeal to people's rational thinking and logic, one would say, why would you have a specific consulate or um, separate diplomatic mission uh, for the so-called Palestinian Arabs, not in an area of what will be the future Palestine state, and which is mostly, quote-unquote, Palestine today, like uh, Ramallah or even Bethlehem, which is... Both cities are not that far from Jerusalem. Why would you have it in Jerusalem? After all, uh, the Trump administration has acknowledged that Israel's capital is Jerusalem, although he left a diplomatic opening there. Everybody in the world knows that Israel is not going to give up on redividing Jerusalem, which it never was in its 3,000-year history except for 19 years when the Jordanians illegally occupied the city. And it's just going to start up a whole new diplomatic uh, confrontation, uh, because that gives the Arabs an indication. The United States will say, okay, uh, we'll set up the concert in Jerusalem, because eventually it will be in Jerusalem, which means we're going to separate the city again. So uh, if it's a concert is meant to help out consular services, uh, economic uh, programs, what consulates do all over the world, and what Israeli consulates do in Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago, and Los Angeles, as far as I know, why not have it where the Arabs are? So it doesn't make sense, and it's, it could be problematic. Along those same lines, and we're looking at Israeli-Palestinian relationships, we do hear that the foreign minister has recently met with the Palestinian leadership. Can you tell us about that? Well, actually, Rick, it was our defense minister, Mr. Benny Gantz, who you would expect is trying to fight Arab terror and protect our borders and other little things like a defense minister does. Uh, he goes off and talks with Mahmoud Abbas, who, uh, Rick, you know, Mahmoud Abbas initiated the appeal to the International Court in Haag to declare Benny Gantz a war criminal so that if he leaves Israel, he'll be arrested. This is the man, Mr. Gantz, in his ultimate wisdom, went to meet. And what did he discuss? They discussed economic matters. 
Rick, you and I know that defense and economy are slightly two separate issues. Why don't you send the finance minister, the economic minister, the foreign minister? Why did Mr. Gantz jump the gun, and you'll pardon my expression, and run over to meet Mahmoud Abbas? Uh, and uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, the former Secretary of State of the United States, once said something like, it's in Israel, all foreign policy is personal politics. In other words, Mr. Gantz was trying to make himself glorified, in my opinion. And some of the issues he discussed are very, very problematic. Uh, once again, I use that term. Does this signify a different tack in relationship from the new prime minister to the Palestinians? Well, the new prime minister, Mr. Bennett, doesn't want to talk with the Palestinians at, with, with representatives of the Palestinian National Party. I'll make that more official. And he said, Mr. President Biden, it's not on the table right now. But he has a government that's made up of six or seven different different parties, now each one pulling this way and that way. And so Gantz jumped the gun, as I said. There was reports here in the Israeli press that Mr. Bennett wasn't that happy, even though he had to authorize the meeting, although uh, that reminds me of a story which once told about Menachem Begin uh, when he uh, was told that Ariel Sharon uh, was doing something in Lebanon. He was asked, do you know what he's doing? He said, yes, I always know. Sometimes beforehand, sometimes afterwards. (laughs) So maybe Bennett also had that same experience with Mr. Gantz right now. But it's not the way to run government policy. The, The senior ministers meet together and decide yes to do this, no to do that. Not that each one pulls in a different direction, which, of course, in my opinion, uh, shows Mr. Bennett's weakness in this government. Of course, former Prime Minister Netanyahu was very much not understood when it came to his positions. It sounds like maybe that's a little bit different now. Uh, look, one of the things Gantz offered the uh, Palestinian Authority was something in the neighborhood of about $150 million of economic support. Okay, now you would think for a moment... Okay, even if it's a good idea, which I'm not admitting to you or our listening audience, okay, but just for the argument's sake, if you make such a public announcement, is that also a public announcement that includes we ask them to stop uh, terror, we ask them to stop inciting against Jews, we ask them to stop paying terrorist families uh, stipends and grants according to a scale of how many Jews they killed or wounded. That should also be in the public announcement. I mean, let's be honest. These are the things that Israel needs eventually to make peace, whether it's Mr. Netanyahu or Mr. Gantz or Mr. Bennett. These are the issues on the table. Not to mention them at all. In other words, they weren't in the conversation. What is he doing in Ramallah? One last question, Winky, and then I'll let you go. Just the, the news here has been dominated by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I was wondering, how does the typical man on the street there in Israel view that withdrawal? What does it say about the situation 
in the Middle East. What does it say about the administration's uh, intentions here in the United States? Well, there's no real average man on the street here except your tax driver. <laughs> but uh, most people would say if it looks bad, it's bad. No one's going to go into the details as former President Trump did by, by saying, well, first of all, you'll do this, and then you begin, then you pull out the civilians, and then you pull out your weapons. And if you can't pull out your weapons, you destroy them. And then you begin to pull back your troops. You empty out everything behind your front line before running away. Now, admittedly, and I want to be fair to everybody here, there's no good way to retreat, either under fire or not under fire. We, to be honest, sort of fled Lebanon back in 2000 with Mr. Barack, and it didn't look good. You're old enough to remember there were pictures of our allies in southern Lebanon, uh, the Maronites, right? Many of them were stranded behind. If you remember at the gate there, there were all the cars lined up and people waiting. When we left Gaza, the disengagement, the 2005, the, um, the Gazans went wild, uh, shooting and doing all sorts of things like that. And it looked as if we were running away. Well, we actually weren't. But pictures look bad. People will think bad. The big question, though, is what type of judgment is at the top of American political leadership that would lead to such a situation in the first place? Even if you decide, you can't blame President Trump for making a decision back, what was it, in March or something like, or whatever, okay, or whenever he made a decision to leave, and then do it all wrong, and then blame him because he made a decision. You know, the proof is in the pudding. You have people dying, unfortunately, and you have American citizens, I understand, still left behind. That doesn't portend good for Israel because it means America is weak. Somehow, somewhere, in some form, that message goes around. Taliban is strengthened. ISIS is strengthened. Al-Qaeda might be strengthened. This is not good for the Middle East or uh, a good portion of the world. Well, Winky, that is true and very concerning to us here as well and to our listeners as well. Thank you so much for your insight, for your wisdom as you talk to us, and we wish you well as you prepare uh, for the new year. Yes, we have the 10 days coming up uh, this, this week, and uh, thank you for your wishes for our Hebrew New Year. And again, thank you for the privilege of continuing to be on the program here, and best wishes to the family Moving on to our final guest today, we have Rich Schmidt. Rich is a prophecy teacher with Prophecy Focus Ministries and the former sheriff of Milwaukee County. Rich is also a good friend of the family and was a student of prophecy under my father. Rich, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much, Rick. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to spend some time with you and uh, to represent your ministry as well. Great. I know, and you were, the last time I saw you, Rich, you were at the memorial service for my father, which was a few weeks ago now, and uh, you said some lovely words, and so I wanted to give you, if you would like to, a chance just to remember my father. Well, absolutely. Your your dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, was the most influential, important person in my life when it came to the prophetic ministry, if you will, the Word of God. 
I met him around 15 years ago. I'd followed him for multiple years. I'd listened to many of his sermons, his uh, prophecy focus, uh, Prophecy Today radio network, listened to dozens of his CDs, his DVDs, and then uh, he challenged me actually about 15 years ago to join what was uh, School of the Prophets, still exists, of course, on the Internet, uh, through Louisiana Baptist University. And your dad was the one who taught uh, the classes along with uh, Dave James. And I had actually been finishing up another doctorate in theology, and I, I just have to say and encourage those listening that School of the Prophets is 100% eschatology. It was the best teaching I ever received and I'd gone to multiple Bible schools. It was just phenomenal. So I love your dad dearly. He was a tremendous mentor and friend, and I, I just can't say enough about how much I love him and appreciate what he invested into me. Well, we certainly, uh, I certainly appreciate those words in our family, and uh, those that loved our father and loved our ministry appreciate those words as well. At the memorial service, you, and not only you, but a couple of other of his students told some humorous stories about the f- basically one of the first times you met my father and him talking to you and one of his first questions to these people to, I mean, you said you were already completing your doctorate. These other Bible teachers, pastors, learned men, one of his first questions was, what are the three strands of the human family? And it's a question that stumped some of you and kind of made you realize what you needed to, uh, where you needed to improve. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, sure. And uh, the scenario was this. I, had, I was actually meeting your dad for the first time about 15 years ago. And uh, I just, he was, if you will, my hero. I, and I was just thrilled to death to be with him. And he sits down, and uh, right away in uh, his non-timid form says, Hey, Rich, do you, you want to be a prophecy teacher? Do you know what the three strands of the human family are? And I was just totally blown away and had no idea what he was referring to. So uh, that's what started our relationship, and, uh, a long-term relationship, of course. So he did talk about what are the three strands of the human family, and uh, I'll give you the passage, and then we'll review how it works together. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, basically or Gentiles, or to the Church of God. So uh, uh, Dr. DeYoung basically went through how all of that fits together. So basically we went back to the Old Testament and went through Genesis uh, chapter 1 through Genesis 11, And for the first 2,000 years of history, from approximately 4,000 B.C., when Adam and Eve were created and the earth was created, 4,000 B.C. up till approximately 2,000 B.C., there were only Gentiles. So that was the first strand of the human family were the Gentiles. Then we go past the first 2,000 years of history. We come to Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham comes on the scene. Well, of course, Abraham... Uh, patriarch of the Jewish people. We have Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Basically, we talk about the children of Israel as uh, the Jewish people. Well, then we have the second strand of the human family formed. So we have Gentiles, first 2,000 years. We get to approximately 2,000 B.C. Then we have Jews and Gentiles. So that's the second strand of the human family. So 
So what would be the third? Well, and it's kind of interesting that everything kind of fits. It's not exact, but close to a 2,000-year period. First 2,000 years, Gentiles. Second 2,000 years, Genesis 12, till we get to the time of Christ. Uh, uh, another 2,000 years with Jews and Gentiles. And then the third strand of the human family forms. After the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we then have the third human strand form, which are Christians. So we have Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. And it's extremely important as we study prophecy to understand who the Gentiles are, who the Jews are, who the Christians are, and how they fit into God's prophetic word. Well, Rich, I do like to hear the story uh, of my dad, you know, being the um, the uh, hard-nosed teacher that he was, but he, it was only because he wanted uh, he wanted everybody to to get what he got, and he and he wanted people to see it. And he always said, "Bring your Bible and let's talk." And this was and dealing with this, it's basically dispensation, kind of a simplified dispensation, um, a, a hermeneutic, a method of interpreting scriptures. And uh, that was that was so important to him. And you were one of his special students, so thank you so much for that. And also, Rich, if you don't mind. Um, I'm gonna. This is the the end of our, our of our first hour, but I'd like to bring you back at the end of our program, which is the end of the second half hour, because I'd like to talk a little bit. Um, if you could join me for the uh, look at the book, is that okay? Oh, I'd love to do that, Rick. And thanks for asking. That's it for the first hour of prophecy today. We will be back shortly with David James right here on Prophecy Today. And we're back here on Prophecy Today. My name is Rick DeYoung, and I'm your host here on Prophecy Today Radio. And right now we have the segment usually reserved for our time with a good friend of my family's and a good friend of the ministry, Dave James. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks a lot for having me, and it's great to be with you. Uh, I hear you're on the road uh, traveling. It seems like you're always on the road traveling, huh? Well, I'm on the road uh, quite a bit, traveling back and forth uh, different places, but uh, yeah, you caught me in the, r- r- just pulling off the highway to do our segment. Well, thank you for making the, ex- uh, the effort, Dave. We greatly appreciate that, and our listeners appreciate it as well. Uh, continuing the tradition that you and my father had, Dave, uh, the tradition of responding to listener emails, uh, there, this week's question is about the Day of the Lord. That's right. Our listener wrote this. Uh, I will soon be teaching on the day of the Lord from from 1 Thessalonians 5, and as I study this, I am confused when comparing to Acts 2, 16 to 21. And he continues with, uh, I know there is a sense that the church age is in the last days, but in Acts it is clearly in the context of the day of the Lord and the apocalyptic events associated with the second coming. And finally he says, since that was not the final day of the Lord and the coming of Christ, it seems that what the apostles said in Acts 2 was incorrect, but that doesn't fit with Scripture being inspired. How do you understand this passage? So it's a great question. Uh, the the term last days, Rick, refers to any time after the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when Christ could have returned, which I would say could have happened in the first century and it could happen at any time in the future. And I also believe Christ's return happens in two phases. 
the rapture of the church and the second coming a little over seven years later, and that seven-year period is known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation, and it begins with the affirmation of the treaty in Daniel 9.27 by the Antichrist, and that also marks the beginning of the day of the Lord prophesied throughout the Old Testament, including Joel 2, which... which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, and he wasn't mistaken. Tongues were a sign of the final day of the Lord's judgment, as can, as can be seen in Deuteronomy 28, Jeremiah 5, and Isaiah 14. So they were standing at the threshold of that judgment uh, on the day of Pentecost. However, Israel failed to accept Peter's offer of the kingdom, and so the fulfillment was postponed. Well, thank you so much for that uh, answering that listener's email, and we appreciate your information, Dave. Uh, this week, I wanted to discuss a topic that you and my dad were going to deal with a few weeks ago, and that is the matter of selecting music as a worship leader for your church or other ministry. Well, it's interesting, Rick, that although your dad was a musician and music has been a part of my ministry for over 35 years, I don't think we ever talked about music in any of our hundreds of weekly discussions. And of course, in my segment of the program, we discuss current events and issues uh, that have some impact on believers in the Church, and to be honest, there aren't many other topics that are as relevant week in and week out as we participate in worship services. And what prompted me to suggest this topic to your dad was an article on the Christian Post website that I shared with him, uh, and I sent it to you a few days ago, and the title of the article was, Worship Leader No Longer Supports Hillsong Elevation Bethel Music Over False Gospel Message. And the author began her article with this, Tennessee recording artist and worship leader Mackenzie Morgan has gone viral after she posted on social media that she can no longer stay silent about what she says are heretical teachings of groups such as Bethel Music, Elevation, and Hillsong Worship. And she continued by saying this, uh, in July tw- in the July 12th Facebook post, Morgan, who leads worship for Refined Church in Las Casas, Tennessee, criticized what she dubbed the false teachings in some of today's most popular worship music. And as of to, to, and as of Tuesday afternoon, she, her post had over 10,000 shares. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Bethel and Hillsong churches, even if they know their music, what can you tell us about these two groups? Well, Bethel is a megachurch in Redding, California, with over 11,000 members, and that was connected with the Assemblies of God denomination until 2005, and has evolved into one of the most extreme hyper-charismatic groups in the world. And Bethel has its own music labels, which have gained popularity within contemporary worship music. Uh, The Church runs the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry that teaches that all miracles in the Bible can be can be performed today, including faith healing, raising the dead, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, prophecy, and so on. And in their services, people regularly are found to laugh uncontrollably, uh, lie or roll around on the floor, shake, stagger, scream, and, and dance, which they believe are signs of being filled with the Spirit, but have absolutely no biblical support uh, whatsoever. And one of the most well-known phenomena in uh, the Bethel Church is what's called the glory cloud that supposedly appears and supposedly drops gold flakes uh, or glitter on the worshipers. Now, Hillsong is a charismatic 
uh, mega church as well, and that started in 1988 in Sydney, Australia, and it too was uh, part of the Assemblies of God there until 2018. Uh, through the 80s and 90s, uh, the Hillsong congregation grew from about 45 to nearly two tw- to nearly 20,000 members, and they developed a market. They developed a marketing strategy to target younger generations with a goal of establishing itself as a global music standard. Now, they adhere to uh, word faith theology, which is often called the health and wealth gospel. And across its campuses uh, worldwide, Hillsong has a total congregation of over 100,000. Do you have some examples of bad theology that can be found in Bethlehem Music so our listeners can get an idea of why worship leaders may want to be careful? Well, I did quite a bit of research in preparation for a discussion, Rick, and I read through the text of many Bethel songs uh, because, honestly, I just wasn't uh, familiar with their music. And what I found was not so much a problem of bad theology, uh, but rather it's an almost complete lack of theology of any kind. Uh, a few songs do talk about Christ's death and resurrection and God's care for those who, who are His, but by far, the, the majority of songs, at least of the ones I looked at, uh, and there were a do- a dozens of them, actually, they were essentially love songs, songs that a guy or a girl might write about someone they were in love with. And now, of course, some of the psalms express an emotional connection to the lo- to the Lord, but Bethel songs, are, they're more like love songs to what I would call a quote-unquote boyfriend Jesus. Let, let me read the lines from uh, a few of them. Uh, this is from the song, We Dance. When my faith gets tired and my hope seems lost, you spin me round and round and remind me of that song, the one you wrote for me, and we dance, and we dance. From the song, My Dear, we read this. I am yours, and you are mine. I am ravished by your sight. One, of one glimpse into your eyes, my lover's coming for his bride. And then from the song, Draw Near, Draw near to me, for I have drawn near to you. Pull on the strings of my heart, for I long to respond to you. All my love is for you. All my love is yours. So it just gets really strange, Rick. Well, I know you've researched Hillsong music as well. How, how would you say that compares to Bethel music in general? Well, as I, as I looked over the music from Hillsong, the, uh, the first thing that struck me is that there's much more focus on theology, and while there isn't much what I would call deep theology, it does tend to be more biblical than Bethel music overall. And a lot of them actually are about having a saving relationship with Christ and his death and resurrection are often mentioned. Uh, Given that Hillsong is very charismatic in theology and practice, I, I honestly expected to find a lot of that in the lyrics, but there's surprisingly very little, and things aren't often expressed in an in an explicitly charismatic way, and I have to wonder if that might be actually uh, to have a broader audience than just among uh, charismatics, and maybe it's a marketing decision. Um, I I don't want to be cynical about that, but you get that sense. And another thing I was expecting was a lot of Kingdom Now theology. For example, like Majesty, uh, which came out of the Foursquare Church uh, by Jack Hayford, uh, which was very popular in the 1980s, very much a Kingdom Now. Uh, but even though there are hints of Kingdom Now in uh, in Hillsong music, it's not 
very explicit. Now, there are some quote-unquote love songs that are similar to almost everything coming out of Bethel, but not nearly as many, and they don't really have that love letter to a boyfriend Jesus feel that so much of Bethel music does. And I did find that there are quite a few articles out there from worship leaders about dropping Hillsong music, uh, but it seems it has more to do with not wanting to support or identify with Hillsong because of their theology and practice, and not so much because of the lyrics. And that also seems to be true of Elevation music, which was mentioned in the in the article I quoted from earlier, and that music comes out of Steve Furtick's church, and again, it's because of his theology, which is non-Trinitarian, uh, that causes people issues. And I'm sure a lot of the criticism of Hillsong among conservatives is because of the rock concert feel of their videos, but that's a, a bit of a different question about style, uh, which maybe we can do another day, but that can get uh, a bit tricky. As someone who's been involved with leading worship a lot over the years, what are some guidelines that you personally that you personally recommend when selecting music? Well, in my current theological issues course, I have a section on philosophy of music, and and I do with, deal with style a bit up front uh, by rep- actually playing recordings of the song "Amazing Grace" in styles that range from traditional to country and bluegrass, from the bagpipes that we sometimes hear at funerals of fallen officers to even a reggae uh, version. Uh, so that has a lot to do with personal preference, and again, maybe we can get into that uh, at a different time, but. There are a few principles that I personally use. Uh, the first is that music should focus on God and glorify Him rather than self, and we see this throughout the Psalms. Uh, the second, I would say, is related to the first, and it, that is that the lyrics should be thoroughly biblical. And on a few occasions when I chose a song with what I would say might be a minor problem, I even changed the wording a bit. Uh, another is that it should encourage joyful worship and inspire love, joy, peace, and other fruit of the Spirit, uh, which can touch on style because some types of music have melodies and chord structures and overall tones that really do elicit very negative emotional responses that I would say are contradictory to worship. And I also suggest music that encourages participation because I find that much of the music that's being produced today is more performance-oriented than congregational and it has as odd chord progressions and melodies that are difficult to follow, making them more difficult to learn and sing with, uh, to sing together. And finally, I do think associations can be important, and we don't want to give tacit approval to those we strongly dis- disagree with, as this can be confusing, I think, especially for youth and for younger believers. David, this is such great information. And again, we're not necessarily attacking anybody. We're saying... Make sure you know what you're singing. Make sure you know what your worship leader is putting out there. I know uh, myself, I'm my father's son, and I, when I go to the service, I probably am more excited to hear the message than to hear the music. But the music does create an emotional response, and that's something that we need to be conscious of. And we also need to make sure that the music is in line with uh, our theology and what we're doing. So, David, thank you so much. That's a great segment. Um, We appreciate you keeping us informed. Glad to do it, Rick. Look forward to another conversation in the future. Well, we have one more segment to go here on Prophecy Today, and that is our look at the book. Prophecy teacher Rich Smith will join us to talk about all the subjects we've discussed today 
and how those news items are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But before we go to break, I would like to again talk to you, the listener, about my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung was the founder of Prophecy Today Ministry and and Prophecy Today Radio, and he sat behind this mic for over 20 years. Although we are heartbroken that he is gone, we rejoice that he is in heaven, and we wanted to let you know that we will continue the ministry that he began. Our plan, Lord willing, is that we will continue the radio ministry, the podcast ministry, the internet ministry, and all the other ways that we were able to reach people with the good news of the prophetic word of the Bible. We ask for your prayer and ask for your support as we continue on with this ministry. Thank you so much for being a part of our ministry, and thank you so much for listening to us today. We'll take that break now, and then we'll be right back with Rich Schmidt, and we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is Rick DeYoung with Prophecy Today, and this is the final segment of our weekend program, a segment that we like to call a look at the book. And what we'd like to do is take some of the stories and uh, some of the news stories and some of the things that you've heard earlier on in this program, and we kind of tie it all together at the very end and look at uh, these events in the context of Scripture. Uh, I've asked... Rich Schmidt, he was with me in the first hour. I've asked him to join me as we look at these subjects. And Rich, 
we've been talking about the events taking place in Iran, events taking place in Russia, and of course these two countries have been in the news recently, plus we take a look at the European Union, and we also take a look at what's taking place in Afghanistan, and all these things are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But if we wanted to go back into Scripture, specifically for Russia and for Iran, what role are those two countries going to play in the end times? Well, Rick, this is just an absolutely exciting scenario that's developing right as we speak. And we're looking at from Ezekiel chapter 38, which is the main passage that we look to when discussing these particular countries. It's very interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 38, specifically verse 2, God is talking about a land called Magog. Now, Magog is, as we know, if you study uh, the particular names, Magog is actually referring to the land of Russia today. You go down to Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5, and it talks about Persia. Well, most scholars believe uh, when we're talking about Persia that it includes three major countries, Iran, which is the one we're interested in today, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. So we have these major cities, I'm sorry, these major countries that exist today, and what are they going to do? Well, God makes it very clear in Ezekiel that all of these countries, including Turkey, including Iran, including Russia, including Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Libya, all according to Ezekiel 38, will, if you will, be coming up in the future against the land of Israel. And uh, in verse 16 of Ezekiel 38, it says, You will come up, naming those countries by name, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. As we know when we're talking about the land, we're almost always in Scripture talking about the land of Israel. So without a shadow of a doubt, we know that these major players in history, in our current history, if you will, are setting the stage, as your dad loved to say, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That battle is going to happen, but we can't stop without going to what the results are going to be. All of these nations which surround Israel, including Russia, including Iran, will join up with other Arab nations. They will attack Israel. But the end is not going to be good for them. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 21, Ezekiel states, I will call for a sword against these nations, if you will, throughout all my mountains. And here's what's going to happen. Verse 22, Ezekiel 38. God says he'll bring him to judgment with pestilence, with bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many people who are with him, Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. God will allow them to attack Israel one day in the in the prophetic future, but God will wipe out those countries and save Israel. Rich, that's an excellent explanation um, and to why we should be looking. You say setting the stage. Why should we be looking at the news and looking at it, as we say, in the light of God's prophetic word is because when we see these things taking place— we realize where we are in God's prophetic timeline. But if I could speak to that, so you talk about all these things that are taking place, well, regular listeners of our program would know that these things are going to take place during the tribulation. 
but before the tribulation, what would be the next main event on God's calendar? Well, the next major event on God's prophetic calendar is indeed the rapture of the Church. This, of course, was uh, Dr. DeYoung's, I would say, probably his top favorite subject, because every single one of us is looking for Jesus Christ to come in the air, not to touch down on the earth at his second coming, but literally, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells us, that Jesus Christ will come in the air, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. As uh, uh, And again, and I, I love quoting your dad, because many times I hear him say, we're not looking for the undertaker, we're waiting for the upper taker. Another great thing that uh, uh, he used to say is we're not looking for signs. There's no signs that have to be fulfilled in order for Christ to take his church home. We are listening for a sound. Those three things in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're waiting, and of course we ought to be working hard and being God's ambassadors, according to Second Corinthians 5.20. Now then, what? We're ambassadors for Christ. As we wait for the Lord Jesus to come take us home, and we trust it will be in our generation, God's called each of us to be his ambassadors. Well, as we look at the stage being set for events that are going to take place during the tribulation, but before the tribulation, as you just said, the rapture of the church, can you just say very briefly, what do we, both Christians and those unsaved alike, what do we need to be doing to prepare for these events? As we prepare for the Lord Jesus to return, and again, it could happen any moment, it could happen immediately, or it may be a few weeks, few months, we don't know down the line. But as we wait for the Lord to return, again, God has called us to be his ambassadors. As Christians, we should be telling every single person we can the greatest news ever given to mankind, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's exactly what his mission was. So that's what our job is as Christians. If somebody's listening and they've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they'll miss the rapture if they don't give their heart and life to Christ. So the Lord has, has told us, he said, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, God's free unmerited gift are you saved. It's through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any person should boast. So Jesus calls all of us uh, to put our faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection in order to go to heaven. And for those of us that have received that free gift, God's asked us to keep busy, acting as his ambassadors, telling the great news to everyone we can as we wait until the rapture takes place. Thank you so much, Rich. As my dad used to say, after hearing all this, I guess there's nothing left for us to do but keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you.